remain standing, please do so as you turn to Luke chapter 6. We will have the reading of the Word of God. It is printed for you in the bulletin. However, there will be some reference to the earlier part of chapter 6, so I strongly recommend if you have a Bible, opening up to that chapter. This is the Word of God for you, the people of God. Starting in verse 27, ending in verse 36 of Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Let us pray. Father, this is truth, necessary truth, that you know we need, for there is no way we can accomplish this without you. There is no way that these difficult commands can be fulfilled by us if you do not make a supernatural change within us. Lord, we beg you now that you would take this, your word, you would plant it in our hearts, and that it would grow up to bear great fruit for your kingdom. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our reward. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You'll have to forgive me. I went with an experiment, took off the Dr. Seuss thing, and couldn't get it back on, so here we have it. There might be some wind, and I apologize greatly. Brothers and sisters, uh, I haven't been on this earth for very long. I'm pretty young. And in my short experience, I have found that most people are in the same situation. Most everybody is just trying to do the very best they can with what they have. We're all trying to make the best choices, use our time in the best way, be the best friend, husband, wife, son, daughter, brother, sister that we can be to the people that we love. And all of us, every single one of us, are failing at that in some way. Everybody has an idea of what they think is the best. And that idea affects every single thing that a person does or says or even thinks. The problem we all encounter 
then we're all pretty broken, aren't we? Even if we can decide on what the best way is, we can't seem to figure out the best way to live the best way. If only someone who really knew the true best way to live could tell us what that is. Oh, what a treasure that would be, huh? Hallelujah. That's exactly what we have right here in the Bible. God's word to us, explaining exactly what we human beings are to understand about him and about ourselves. He communicates to us through this special revelation what is the best way for you to live. The first audience of Jesus' words we are going to meditate upon this morning were very much like all of you. They, too, were just trying to do the best they could with what they had. Now, if you were to start reading at the beginning of chapter 6, if you just turn over there and you can scan, then you will see that this man called Jesus of Nazareth declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath and proves it. He proves it by healing a man whose hand was stricken away. This, to some people, was not the best thing to do. And they were pretty angry about it. They hated him for it. But many, like you, cannot deny that there's something about this Jesus. Also, like you, these people flocked to him to hear his words and to be healed of their diseases, as you see in verse 17. He spoke to the people and taught that there is a best way to live, a blessed way to live. We call these, in these verses that lead up to our passage, the Beatitudes. We call it the Beatitudes because that word means supreme blessedness. And Jesus, in giving us those statements of supreme blessedness, draws a clear distinction between two kinds of people. There is the worldly man, he is not blessed, he's not living the best way. And there is the godly man, who is blessed and lives in the best way. Jesus teaches that the worldly man is satisfied with what he can attain for himself. He is satisfied with what the world offers in this life. He does not understand what is best. The way that God has intended people to live. And because of this, he will suffer many woes. He's satisfied with fleeting things, gold and jewels and riches, and the approval of men. But the godly man, though it seems that he should have no cause to hope, he's poor, he's mourning, he's reviled and insulted, he's persecuted because of his faithfulness to God, yet Jesus declares that he is the blessed one. Our Lord Christ upends the understanding of what even God's people, the Jews, had thought was the blessed, best way to be. Well, brothers and sisters, now turn your attention to the word of our Lord here in verses 27 through 36, in which Jesus continues his teaching about the life of God's people. In this passage before us this morning, we see that Jesus commands a new way to live for his people. Jesus, our Lord and King, commands a new way to live for his people. Now most of this passage clearly shows that Jesus expects much of his people. And he gives commands that demonstrate a new way to live 
We're going to look at this section in verses 27 to 34. Please follow along if you can. Now, the first thing I notice is there's a new teaching in this very first part of verse 27. It's a new teaching, and these are the words of the true teacher, the one wiser than Solomon, the true king who speaks with true authority. Jesus Christ alone has the right and the power to command his people. And he says, but I say. In Matthew's account, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says this with much more frequency as he gives his teaching. And it indicates that there's something new, something important that he is emphasizing about something that his people had already known. And when the king speaks, when the king imparts new wisdom and new instruction, his faithful people listen. And that's exactly Jesus' audience in this passage. It's his people. It's the population of the new kingdom, those given the gift of true spiritual hearing, those with their ears opened to hear. Because he has said, but I say to you who hear. These people are not like the people described in Isaiah 6, 9-10, who see but don't perceive, or hear but don't understand. These people see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand in their hearts, and have come to Jesus to be enlightened and healed. To his people, Jesus gave commands which show that he wants us to have new perspectives on life. First, we must have a new perspective on our neighbors. Look at the rest of verse 27 and 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spite you and use you. Those who can hear, those who can faith by God, are to have a different understanding about how human beings are to relate to each other. These aren't commands, imperatives. They are not optional. You must love your enemies. You must do good to those who hate you. You must bless those who curse you. And you must pray for those who uh, spitefully use you or abhor you or revile you in your translation. But notice, these aren't entirely new commandments. Rather, a new perspective on how God's commandments apply to the life of God's people. The Hebrews had known of the great summary of God's law for ages. Later in this gospel, in chapter 10, uh, a lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You remember this? And Jesus asks him, what the law says. And what does the man reply? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This was widely understood. However, the man's next question showed exactly what had gone wrong in the Jewish religion. It says in verse 29, But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus' answer to this man is the parable of the Good Samaritan, with which I'm sure all of you are familiar. Jesus is commanding, as his Father in heaven had, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the best way to live. It doesn't matter how people think of you or how they treat you. It doesn't matter why one might hate you. Despite it all, God's people are to love their enemies. We are the opposite of the worldly man. Worldly people dwell in darkness, but we dwell in the light of Jesus Christ. 
The worldly men and women call down curses upon their enemies from their false gods and their powerless ideologies. And we, the people of God, the blessed people, are to respond by praying to the true and living God for him to bless them. We pray that those who so vehemently hate us would be saved by the same miraculous grace that has saved us. The Jewish religious system had perverted neighbor to mean only those Jews of proper birth who treat you well. But Jesus redefines how we are to understand our fellow man. He teaches us that these commands to have a new perspective on our neighbors. And he doesn't stop there. He then commands us in verses 29 and 30 to have a new perspective on our physical well-being. Look, look there with me. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for that. Now the Bible is clear, Old and New Testament, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Apostle Paul reiterates this in Romans 12, 19. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather be placed to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Perhaps you remember in Proverbs 20, verse 22, Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Now this doesn't relegate Christians to the position of perpetual doormats, required to be stepped on and abused by any who attempt to mistreat us. Obviously, we must be wise and godly people, able to discern the difference between someone mistreating us and someone trying to violate the sixth commandment. We must not neglect the responsibility we have to protect the people of God that he has put in our care and to preserve our own lives, which are gifts from him. Rather, by Jesus' commands, we are shown a new perspective of our mistreatment. We don't need to have the worldly instinctual reaction, which is to protect ourselves at all costs. We can offer the other cheek because we know that God avenges those who are persecuted for his sake. Now, as you can imagine, this would have particular significance for people in Jesus' day who were living under Roman occupation. It is hard for us to imagine how important this would be for us to remember, living in an age of what seems like perhaps ideological competition. Hallelujah. Jehovah is still Jehovah. God is still God. And this still holds true. He will avenge his people. And the best way to live is to abandon any notions of vengeance and revenge and leave it to God. Now, giving our tunic and our undergarment to the mother who takes our cloak is closely related to giving from our goods to those that ask it and not obsessing over the return of things with the soul needs. We know that all we have is a gift from God. He's given us all that we possess, and it is not ours, right? But it's His. And He's given it to us that we can steward it for His purposes and glory. Do you not believe that God Almighty can give you a new cloak and a new tunic? Do you doubt that he can return your goods, even if 
can provide new or better goods, even in greater quantity than you could have imagined. He is God. He created the heavens and the earth, and he's made all things of nothing by the power of his word. Why should his children fret over the loss of a few material This is foolishness to the world, but it is what the Lord Jesus Christ demands is best for his people. We are to trust that God is real. We are to trust that he has the power to avenge us and restore us. We don't have to feel like we have to take all matters into our own hands at all times. Isn't this quite a different perspective? A new perspective? Dare I say a better perspective? On our physical well-being? Jesus concludes this section by commanding us to have a new perspective on our own behavior. Look at verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. We now see clearly what Jesus is teaching his people by this one verse. Nearly everyone has heard of the golden rule, right? This is Luke's presentation of it. I want you to notice that this command to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, if stated in the negative is something most people would agree to, whether or not they're Christian. This is how it would be stated in the negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. I think that this is probably how most people actually live. Right? I'm not going to be a jerk to you, so you don't be a jerk to me. I think this is why it's so tempting to justify our mistreatment of others when they mistreat us. Christians, you cannot excuse your bad behavior by blaming it on the behavior of others. Jesus is clearly saying that you must behave toward others as you want them to behave toward you. Especially when they are already behaving toward you like, like a you-know-what. Like someone who hates you. Like a true enemy. We are citizens of a new kingdom. And the King Jesus Christ, through his commands, shows us the best way to live. And he has every right to expect his people to obey his commands. The commands he gives here show that you must live a different, a new kind of life. And to do this, you must have the new perspective on your neighbors. Who are you to love? And this new perspective on your physical well-being, how would you survive? And a new perspective on your own behavior, how must you behave toward your fellow well, Jesus then uses three questions to illustrate that in addition to new perspectives, you are also to have new motivations. Our Lord's repeatedly asking the question, what credit is that to you? And it's interesting because the word here for credit is the very word for grace, or gift, or benefit. And by asking these questions, he indicates that he's talking about the end results we hope to achieve through our actions. What reward do you see? What motivates you? He shows us that we are to have a new motivation for love. Look at verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. It's sad to admit it, but there are some people, some people in this world, that are really easy to love. And there's a flip side to that point. There are some people in this world 
to make it very difficult to love. And we all would agree that loving someone who's good to us, someone who treats us well, someone who cares for us and truly loves us, is easy. But here we learn that we can't congratulate ourselves for loving the people that we like. We can't pat ourselves on the back for loving those who are easy to love. Even the worst of the human race does that. Even ISIS, even the KKK, even neo Nazis or Antifa, groups that are characterized by whom they hate, even they love their own. Jesus wants us to know that his people are to love for different reasons than the world loves. Our motivation for love is not found in the other person. It's not even found in ourselves. It's found in our Heavenly Father, who has bestowed His love upon us. Then we turn our attention to verse 33, and we see that Jesus shows us that we are to have a new motivation for service. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Again, we have the same kind of phrase, but this time it's applying to service, doing good for others and to others. It's the same as with love. It's easy to serve those who do good to us. It's easy to serve when you're always giving thanks and feeling appreciated. It's, it's so easy that even sinners who do not naturally seek the good of others will behave this way. But God's people, true Christians, cannot settle for this motivation for service. You cannot be motivated by convenience and reciprocity, there is a better way. Instead, you must be motivated by the Father's example. You must be motivated by the boundless good the Lord has done for you while you were yet a sinner, while you were an enemy against Him in rebellion to His rule and authority. Well, lastly, in this section, in which God shows us a new way to live, we see that our Lord Jesus shows us a new motivation generosity. Verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. To me, this example puts it in the clearest possible terms because it's concrete, it's material. Jesus is talking about giving to someone only if you can reasonably expect to receive at least something in return. It's not about formal loans. Not many of us have the resources to act as a bank for friends and family, um, let alone for strangers. Certainly the poor and the hungry that Jesus has already mentioned in this chapter uh, would not be in that situation. This is about what motivates us to care enough about another person to put our goods, in essence, our life, on the line. Will we do it solely for their benefit? Or does service and doing good in that way only enter our thoughts if there's something that we can get out of our lives? It's also important to see that this command forbids us from looking at other people merely as opportunities for personal gain. Christians do not try to get all they can from other people, withholding our lives or our goods or our service from them unless there's something in it for us. There is a better way 
You are to have a new motivation, one that does not take into account what you will see from the person you are helping. Rather, give to them in obedience to the Lord. You can ask any one of the blessed elders here among us who have lived a life striving for faithfulness to their Redeemer, ask them if this thing was true. Obedience to God can be its own reward. Jesus has used these commands and these illustrations to show you, his people, those who have ears to hear, that you must have a new way of life. You must have new perspectives and new motivations for how you live. You are to live in such a way that you demonstrate your faith, trusting God to avenge you, trusting God to provide for you, trusting God to bring into your lives those people that he wants you to love, those people for whom he wants you to do good and to serve, and those people to whom he wants you to give generously without fear or concern that you get something out. This certainly doesn't describe any kind of people that existed before Jesus came, does it? Brothers and sisters, it describes a very new kind of people. And look at me at verses 35 and 36. We see that this new kind of people are a people who are rewarded for sacrificial love. Look at 35. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In these commands, Jesus has laid out the terms for this new, best way of life. He's described a life of sacrificial love. Love that is given at great cost, without any expectation of reciprocity. He has commanded us to love as God the Father loves. And obedience to this new life as the greatest reward. Living with these new perspectives and new motivations is the fruit of being redeemed and reconciled to God our Father. It shows that the sinful man we were has died in Christ and is born again, purified by his atoning blood. By his work, we are made sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is good news to the human race. It was good news to the covenant people of Israel at the time that Jesus spoke it, for they had lost sight of what it was to live the best way they could, what it means to be God's beloved children. Because God's children, his people, Christians, you are receivers and reflectors of God's love. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil, Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. The new people in Christ are receivers of God's love. We are the unthankful. We are the evil. And God has poured out his kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. But we are not only receivers of God's love, we are reflectors. We are to be like God. Reflectors of that glorious image. You have been commanded to imitate God in His amazing mercy and grace. 
Being like God means to be merciful as he is, to show mercy to our fellow man, especially though they do not deserve it. For he has shown the greatest mercy to us. And you all know, as well as I do, that we surely do not deserve that great mercy. And so we have no right to think that he would hold such mercy for even those who hate us and those who are our enemies. Doesn't this seem like a better way to live? Maybe even the best way to live? Can you imagine living with this new people and this new way of life? Can you imagine your relationships if you follow these commands? Can you imagine your marriages? Can you imagine how you would relate with everyone around you if these perspectives and motivations are perfected in you? If only. That's it. We are sinners. And in our heart thoughts, I think you might agree, we don't really want to live this This is hard. This is extraordinarily difficult. Because to live this way means that we are not allowed to excuse ourselves for giving that stink eye to somebody driving 50 on the left lane on 97. This means that for Christians, no one gets their just desserts. No one gets what's coming to them from Christians. Nothing someone could ever do to you could excuse you from showing mercy as your Father in Heaven constantly shows you mercy. This is beyond difficult. It seems impossible. Love the people that hate you? Love the people that want to see all churches faithful to the Word of God brought down and destroyed. Love those who want to demolish the civilization in which we live and replace it with a new social order. Who can love people that embrace and rejoice in child murder? Who can love people like that? Who can love an angry mob that cries out for their destruction? Who can love someone that denies them not once, twice, but three times just to save their own skin? Who can love someone that falsely accuses them, that slanders them, that spits on them, mocks them, beats them? Who can love the very people that are murdering them? Only Jesus Christ. He cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And only He can cleanse you by His atoning sacrifice and make you into one of these new human beings, living in the best way possible. A reborn human, made not in the image of Adam, but in the perfect, holy image of the Son of God Himself. So all of us, our constant prayer should be, that our Father would make us lovers as He commands us to love by making us more like Jesus Christ, the only one who can perfectly love in this world. We must pray that He would transform our perspectives on our physical well-being and on our behavior that we would obey and give of ourselves as Jesus did. We must pray 
that we would be motivated by God's reward, His blessing, His loving adoption, and not by our own selfish desires. Brothers and sisters, saints of God, we must beg Him to make us merciful, constantly reminding us of the great mercy He shows us. This is the best way to live. May each of you go forth now and live this new life of love as the new people that you have become in Christ Jesus. Please pray with Father in heaven, holy, holy, holy is your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these hard commands. For they show us exactly what you expect of us. And that expectation drives us to you in great dependence. For we know we can do nothing, nothing close to this without you. And Father, as we as we approach the very near future that could have many changes for us in your church, we beg you that this would become even more important, even more necessary even more of a daily ritual and exercise that we would think on these commands and meditate upon them and pray to you for the ability to do But we don't know what you have planned in its every detail. But we know that you work in marvelous, mysterious, and wondrous ways. We know that <laughs> you are glory and glorified when the fool shows the lies. You'll cut a massive army from thousands down to hundreds so that you receive all the glory, not the army, not the commander. And so, God, we ask that you would give us strength and courage to be still, to know that you are God. To not be fearful in the face of those who hate us are obviously our enemies, but that we would be Christians, strong, and loving, that we would not shy away from giving to those in need simply because they may not be like us, or agree with us, or even care for us. They may hate us with passion, but Lord, we will give generously in our lives and in the that you give us. We need you, God. For you are our God. So we stand in you by the power of your spirit. We know that we will not be shaken from our resolve to obey all that you have commanded you. Grant us the joy that comes in our obedience. And grant that we will see you working through our love shown to our enemies. We pray this. In the wondrous name of Christ. Amen.